appreciating that even when it's not clear where the story's going, that, that life and work are a tapestry of experiences and that your superpowers are the things that you can carry forward. And that as you're, as you're taking the left and right turns in your career, because we're probably all multi-hyphenates, we're all non-linear, that you can continue to draw on those as you embark on that next piece of that tapestry. Hey everyone, welcome to Nonlinear, a podcast about the decisions that shape our careers. I'm Dave Fano, the founder and CEO of Teal and the host of this show. If you're enjoying the conversation on this episode, please make sure to subscribe, share, and rate us wherever you're listening to the show. It really helps shine a light on these amazing careers and increases the chances of us learning from each other. Again, thank you so much and let's jump into this amazing career story. Today we're with Sam Lee, who, like many guests, I've had the pleasure of working with. Actually, I think I did one of Sam's first interviews at WeWork, and I left the room saying, we have to hire this person immediately. They're incredible. So, but better to hear directly from Sam. Uh, Sam, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Great, Dave. So great to be on the podcast and, and always great to be with you. You know, as Dave said, my name is Sam Lee. I'm the founder of Indie Collective, and I'd say I'm a multi-hyphenate. Like so many of you, I wouldn't put myself into a box. I've I've worked across a couple of industries, starting off in finance at Goldman, worked in internet, two innings at, at turnarounds, and then you know, you know, tried my hand at startups. Was that we work with Dave, and and most recently have founded my own company and and do a bunch of great consulting work. So I've I've done a couple different things, and uh, I'm excited to explore that today. Awesome. Thank you. I feel like you've had a very balanced, you know, career in terms of if we think about careers as like portfolios, mm-hmm. you have like a nice diversified portfolio in terms of experiences, which is cool, right? Because I think a lot of people have angst around that yeah. and they don't think about it as experientially. So with that, I like to kick off the conversation with when was the first time in your life that you started to think a little bit more deliberately about your career and like what you wanted to do, not necessarily making money, you know, the, Hey, I want to be a veterinarian when I grow up, unless that's really what you wanted to be uh, like my daughter, but you were like really taking action and saying, I could see myself doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I use that word already multi hyphenate. And I feel like it's a word that I'm seeing more and more frequently used by people to identify themselves. So to just kind of unpack that word, you know, for me to be a multi hyphenate means to to acknowledge and embrace the different dimensions of who you are. And I think there's a couple of, of words that I would use to describe myself. I am statements. And these kind of harken back to childhood, frankly. And, and if I was to think about some childhood touchstone moments, it's where I first identified with these words. So I'd say those words include voice, being a voice, being a creator, somebody who's making things, you know, being an adventurer, kind of pushing my boundaries and other people's boundaries, and then being a lover, somebody who takes care of myself and, and also other people. And when I think about career, I'd say the first kind of touchstone moment actually, you know, goes back to the, the high school area or era and, and my childhood, and, and actually has nothing to do with career, but has informed, I'd say, much of my work. And, and that started really with coming out of the closet. And I say that that was informative for, for my career and certainly my life because it was that transformational moment when I made the decision at 16 that I was no longer going to hide, that I finally came into my voice, both you know, with my family and getting getting much closer to family that I had felt like I wasn't wasn't as close to or, or open with, 
but also my community. And, and that was kind of where I found my voice and, and fo- found a level of comfort in who I was and, and then very quickly became that creator. Um, and for me, that meant starting a Gay-Straight Alliance. It was kind of a, a new concept, certainly the first in my community, creating a network around that and, and linked up with hundreds of other kids across the U.S. who were starting to, to kind of introduce these into their schools and led a big conference around that. And that kind of catapulted me into not just finding my own voice, but helping others to find theirs and then create community around that. So that was kind of when I found connection to those two words that then I've now kind of carried through as a thread, I'd say my entire my entire career. So I'd say that's been a really important moment in, in kind of finding that that kind of anchor in terms of who I am as a multi-hyphenate. I love that because I, you know, and you might make me change that question, go forward, because I, at least for me, the career goal and when people ask me, it's like, is to find things that you like doing and that you're good at doing. If you can find that intersection, you're going to have like a limitless supply of energy in life, right? This thing, these things are going to charge you up. And of course, we're all going to do things that we're not good at and we don't like doing. We're going to do things that we're good at and we actually don't like doing, you know, but it really is if we can have the majority of our time being the things that we're good at and that we enjoy doing. And it feels like that was a time in your life that those two things came together in the absence of like, is this thing going to make me money? Is it going to provide my livelihood? Because frankly, I really believe those come secondary if you can actually get get to do things that you're good at and you like doing. 100%, 100%. And I'll say, you know, I've, I've kind of gotten in multiple different career vehicles. I've been at big companies that were succeeding. I've been at turnarounds that have been flailing and that needed a big boost. I've been at hyper growth startups and now I've, you know, started my own thing from the ground up. And I'd say it's in each of those moments, not necessarily in the first step, but at some point, once I was in my flow that I, that I got into that intersection of where I had strength and, and where I found energy. So I think if you can be living at the intersection of those two things for hopefully the majority of your time, you're going to be, you're going to be thriving, which means success and fulfillment. All right. So what did you do with that discovery about yourself that, you know, I like doing this. I like helping people. Yeah. I like being a voice that, that understanding of yourself at honestly an incredibly young age, you know, I feel like that's, that was awesome to unlock that, that early. Like what did that then, what decisions did you make knowing that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think with, with that discovery in myself, I, I was more able to connect with mentors because I was more authentic. And, and when I was standing for and also standing out in the areas where I was unique, people, people were drawn to me, right? I had adults, I had other young people who were looking for ways to support me and further elevate the work that I was trying to do. So that, that was a very, it's probably an obvious thing, but for a, a young person, it wasn't obvious to me at the time. So, so I really leaned into just that not worrying about about all the things that I could be doing, but instead leaning into the things where where I could add unique value. And I'd say that that was something that I then have carried carried through, you know, again, my whole career. It's not not trying to be good at everything, but really to stand out and to lean into those things where you where you found strength. So I'd say another kind of distinctive inflection point was was psychologically kind of shifting um, my mindset around what, what had been termed a disability. So when I was in, in K through 12, I had, I had trouble with reading in the early days. I then 
had had trouble keeping up with some of my classmates in in like the fast-paced classroom and and while I wasn't diagnosed with a specific learning disability they kind of threw the kitchen sink at me and said oh you got a little bit of this a little bit of that and my my dad had been dyslexic and and there had been different things in my family and I remember um, in the early days of school I found that incredibly limiting right it's like oh there's something wrong with me how do I how do I you know how do I succeed in school? How do I get into a great college? How do I then have a great career? Because I wanted those things. And it wasn't until I had exited school after so much efforting. And I did get the A's, but it was because I put so much effort in and I put in the extra hours and got the tutoring. It wasn't until I got out of school and into my first real job at Goldman Sachs, where I was getting 360 feedback because they were really good about 360 feedback, God bless them, that I was the guy that people were going to when when they needed something in a moment's notice, which was shocking to me because I had always been given extra time in school, right? I had time and a half or two times the time to complete the tests and to write the essay. And and there's like, no, no, you're the guy that we go to in a jiffy, right? We really need something quickly. And then I got another piece of feedback from multiple different partners because I was chief of staff in their executive office. And it's like, you know, you know, Sam, you're the guy that we go to when we need to solve the complex problems that involve human dynamics, that involve us motivating and mobilizing other people to get stuff done. And of course, I was like the youngest person in the executive office or one of the youngest people in the executive office. So it was a couple of these points of feedback when I got the 360 that made me realize that what had been diagnosed as a set of learning disabilities was actually a set of strengths. I was a different type of learner. I was certainly a different type of, of connector and, and executor. But if I leaned into those things and the things that, frankly, great mentors started to reflect back at me, that, that if I leaned into those things, I could actually be a catalyst within organizations and a catalyst for mentees and a catalyst for people that, that needed help. So I'd say that was the second key insight. It's, it's you know, reframe some of the things that you think are challenges and, and get some get some surround sound so you can hopefully not just reframe them into something a bit more manageable, but identify what might be superpowers that lie beneath them. So how how did you land at Goldman? Like it's and it's a super prestigious, incredible company. You know, what were some of the actions you took to get there. Cause it didn't mm-hmm. seem also like you were in the finance industry, but you were yep. a chief of staff there, which is this kind of like generalist position. Yeah. Like, you know, a lot of people don't even know like what titles to apply for. Yeah. Like uh, how, how'd that happen? Absolutely. So in terms of, you know, career arc after high school, I went to UPenn, a lot of efforting in high school, a hell of a lot of efforting at UPenn. So I was lucky enough through frankly, great networking, I always kind of am looking for ways to meaningfully connect and meaningfully connecting for me means having something to give as well as having something clear that you can ask for help around. So I always have been focused on that. And through networking, through the alumni network at Kennedy School, I networked into a conversation at Goldman Sachs. And and this guy, Chris, who was actually an alum of Penn, I had been doing work through the Gay Straight Alliance with him. He had then gone to Kennedy School, so he'd been kind of somebody that mentored me along the way. He said, I'm at Goldman now. Let's have a conversation. So I got in conversation. I started an interview process, and I was an inch away from accepting a role in their investor relations department. And I had studied, studied, studied. I didn't know a damn thing about investor relations, to be totally honest. And and they knew that. But but thankfully, big organizations like Goldman Sachs, as long as you've got the chops, you're smart, 
you're going to work hard and learn, they'll hire anybody. You can be an author, like you, you can write poems, like they'll still consider you in the early entry level. So they, they were considering me, but it was in the final round interview with this amazing guy, Dane Holmes. And he's worth looking up because he's had a really interesting career himself. Um, but Dane said, you know, Sam, I like your energy. I like your smarts. You could have this role and I'll give it to you, but I'd rather introduce you to somebody more interesting who could really use your help and who I think you'll, you'll get on with. So he walked me down the hall to Dina, Dina Powell, who, who's an interesting woman who, who is former, you know, public policy whiz, now financial leader who was at the intersection of all things Goldman Sachs, public policy and, and, and kind of philanthropy. So that's kind of actually where I started. And then from there, you know, continued to evolve in my career at the executive office. So, so long story short, it starts with networking and always having something to give and something clear to ask for. And then, you know, by and by developing relationships. Did you finish Harvard? I did. Yeah. Okay. Two year program, finished it. Awesome. All right. So you learned a lot there, built more relationships with more mentors, learned a whole new industry, had done some stuff at the World Bank. What's that next moment where, you know, I, I talk about what I call like the career growth loop where you, you search for something, you then transition, you learn, you onboard, and then you develop. And what most, most of us go through is that development starts to plateau and then we search again. Yeah. Right. So what was that moment for you there where, you know, you had kind of hit a plateau, whether it was presented to you or you went looking for it, but that, that next moment of searching came. Yeah. So I was about two and a half years into to my you know time at Goldman, um, had been thrown into the fire so many times, and and I'd say found myself in a lot of ways. Right, it was in that experience and in those three sixties and in the great sounding board that I realized, oh my gosh, I'm not disabled. <laughs> like I'm really good at a lot of things, and also I can do them quickly if I just make myself do them quickly, right? It's like, I don't have to, you know, be in analysis paralysis. So, so that was a really formative two and a half years, but also in those two and a half years, I realized that starting as a junior person and an executive environment means that there's a very quick glass ceiling, right? I'd already been promoted. There was no path for continued growth. Um, and the people that I was working with, while they were incredible mentors, would have loved to have kept me in that role for an extended period because they now knew how I worked. I complimented them like yin to yang and, and it just worked. So I knew that if I wanted to grow and also find a career path in an industry that would allow me to leverage some of these superpowers that we're talking about, I'd need to switch careers again, right? And I was only two and a half years into this one. So I started interviewing and it was again through through great networking that I connected with the guy that we both know, Francis Lobo. So Francis was a really interesting conversation. And I'd say I've now had other conversations like this, but it was the first I'd ever had like this one because I was, you know, in my mid 20s, I guess. In that first 30 minute conversation, probably 15 minutes and he said, so what do you really want to do, Sam? Like, I already know there's a couple of areas that you can help me. And we had already kind of covered those areas. But he said, what do you really want to do? And I knew the answer to that, right? I had an answer formulated and I kind of knew what some of the inputs were. At least I thought I did. I said, Francis, I want to be a general manager. You know, I'd, I'd love to work for somebody who, who's kind of done that and who can teach me the ropes so that in a few years time, I could be stepping into that role myself. And, and I was leaving Goldman because there was no world in which as a non-financial person, I could be running the revenue side of a business. It just didn't, didn't equate. But I figured 
hopping ship, working in the internet industry, where I was a native to that industry, where you know I was a user of the products and could learn the products and learn the business, felt like that was more of a natural path for me. So he immediately said, well, great. Like, I, I know how you can help me in the next two to three years, and, and I'd be prepared to invest in you and make sure that in two to three years, you're in that place. And, and when he said that, I was like, by God, sold. Like, I'm there for it. So I think really being able to lean into instinct and when you see something that feels right, not, not kind of let your, let your logical mind trick you into overly second guessing or mm. litigating it too much is, is a really important thing. And why is that? Because everybody that I spoke to that was a close in family member or mentor had me second guessing. And I said, nope, I had a great conversation. I'm confident that this guy, whether the company works out or not, is going to invest in me. I went with it. Right. And the company was AOL. So let's LOL about that for a second, because AOL at the time <laughs> was like a total turnaround. It was a nightmare. And this was off the back of Goldman Sachs, right? The most prestigious financial institution where I was working with like the head honchos. And I had met Warren Buffett and Mayor Bloomberg. And it, it was just been like such a star studded experience to go to a turnaround. Everyone was like, what are you talking about? Like, that doesn't make any sense. But I was like, no, no, I think the role is right. I have superpowers that I can lend to helping this guy, Francis, succeed. And he's indicated that he takes an interest and wants to support my vision for career. Like those three things were undeniably just home runs in my mind. So I did it. And I'd say that that was the next inflection point, finding a mentor who took an interest in me and my career. And guess what? We worked at three companies together thereafter, right? So AOL was a success that actually did turn around and it was a financial and, and product outcome. And Francis went on to another company, another internet turnaround, and he was the CEO of that company. I followed him. I was the one person that he took along and we you know, did some cool things there. And guess what? At that next company, I was a manager of a few people. By the end of my experience, I had a $100 million P&L. I had a team of 400 people and I was doing things in that two to three year time horizon that that I just, I dreamed of and thought wouldn't have been possible. So I think really lining up with those people. So I want to talk about that for a second, because I feel yeah. like you experienced something that a lot of people experience, yeah. but you came at it with this courage and commitment to being you and pursuing, you know, you had prior experiences in life that sort of help you build those muscles. I think a lot of people go to who they think they should for career advice. Mm -hmm. And I think what people end up telling you is what they think you should do versus what they as you would do, mm -hmm. right? So like I would imagine, I can't imagine there was very, very many people that thought leaving Goldman Sachs was a good idea. Yeah, none, none thought it was a good idea, especially not for a turnaround, right? Or for a leader at a turnaround. So Francis was an interesting story, right? He had, he had grown up through the ranks and had, you know, had a, really star-studded career at AOL from like being a junior analyst in Bangalore, which is where he was from, to becoming a president at the company and, and you know, in the C-suite. But he had done it in a matter of years. So, so you know, looking looking at the the logical talk track, it just didn't totally add up. And, and there were very smart and caring people in my universe, including great mentors that were like, I don't know, this might not be the thing you jump for. 
But I did lean into the intuition there. And most importantly, I leaned into somebody who took real interest in me, my career, and who had, you know, benefited from great mentors and wanted to share that mentorship with me. What what tips would you have for someone to try to discern that in a conversation? Obviously, you know, at the time, maybe you didn't, you know, have that kind of like a career instrumentation. But today, especially since you help people, you do a lot of coaching, you do a lot of mentoring. Like what, what would, what would, should someone be looking for? Like in an interview, you know, if, if we kind of took this frame of I join people, not companies, mm-hmm. what, what, would, what do you look for? Especially as you've gone to such great companies, like what, what should people look for in that process? Yeah. So I'll say when I was at WeWork and, and you know, following your, your great leadership, I had the chance through my teams to hire like 500 people. And, you know, I was hiring every single one of them myself for probably the first hundred. And then as we kept on growing, it was every manager and above I was interviewing. And I personally looked at their resumes. I personally took interest in every person. And I got so many nice emails after, you know, interviews, not just to say I'm so interested in the position, but thank you for acknowledging this or that or taking interest in in something that I said, right? So I think look for a hiring manager that is actually taking interest in you as a candidate, right? Either coming with some little nugget or kernel that they've observed in your resume, in something that you've kind of already presented to the team because the team's organized and they're filtering up. And if not that, because we're busy, right? Like there was interviews that I couldn't do that level of prep for, although I tried to do it, where I would listen and then ask a smart question in follow-up, right? Drawing on their experience or, or drawing on a smart question that they had asked me. So I'd say that's really important. Is somebody really interested in, in this interview and you in particular? And then when you're in an organization, I would really keep an eye for people that are sending out signals that that they want to help, right? So I, at WeWork, had about 100 mentees, right? And people are like, how the heck did you do that? And it was 100 mentees a year. And it would be people that I'd meet in travels and people that I'd meet in HQ that were hungry for a mentor. And we would have three touch points a year, generally, if it could happen over lunch. And it was pretty routine. It was like a get to know you session where I could reflect back some of your superpowers and then two touch points where it was like, how can I help? So look for leaders and look for middle managers that are looking to, to really connect meaningfully and to, and to provide that mentorship. Cause a lot of people would like to do that. Say I miss doing that now that I've got my own thing and I'm not working in a big organization. And I, and I look for ways to mentor people and people seek me out for it. Yeah, to use some of your own language from before, it seems like look for people that are looking to meaningfully connect, right? Yeah. And, you, and you had a nice definition for that, it, it, where some might think it's transactional, but it's no, no, it's like what, you know, in the context of work, what, you know, do I need from you and what can I do for you? Yeah. Um, and so if the, in a context of an interview, it, if you start to listen for it, it's probably not hard to identify, is this person actually asking questions that help them understand what they can do for me. hundred percent, hundred percent. And I, I think people that really want to meaningfully connect and, and leaders that want to mentor will reference that, right? Like I've referenced that in my interviews, right? Especially with direct reports. It's like, here's how I work with a direct report, right? We're going to, we're going to co-create something. I'm, 
hiring you because I appreciate that you have expertise that I don't have. I want to help you learn the organization. I want to position you for success. I want to get you into a role that's bigger and greater than mine, right? And like, let's figure out how to do that in the next 18 to 24 months. So I would signal that to people. And I think great leaders and hiring managers um, will be doing that. So keep an eye out for that. And, and if they're not doing that, or if you can't read the tea leaves and see that they're, they're going to be doing that, they might not be the right hiring manager for you. So I think there's two great sort of nuggets there. If you're, you know, pursuing an, uh, a job, look for people that are interested in your growth and the kind of questions they ask for. And if you're hiring and you actually care and you're not doing this, you're missing out, make it a point because people are hungry for it. hundred percent. I'm going to change my whole hiring process based on this. Because it, you know, it's honestly one of those, yeah, I don't know. I feel like sometimes I'm a little too caught up in vetting when I think about like how we operate versus how we interview. Those two yeah. things actually probably aren't as aligned as they should be. So thanks for that. Okay, so you go to three companies with Francis. I have the pleasure of knowing Francis. He's awesome. High energy all the time. And you know, I think that's kind of an interesting thing also is that you, because I've seen this happen when like leaders make changes one, it's a great indication that great people come with them. And so a lot of good things about that. But also, you know, it's a conscious decision to move with somebody and versus being, okay, cool, that was great. You helped me get here. Now I'm going to go do my own thing, right? Mm -hmm. I often joke around having, you know, little kids and they're so determined to like feed themselves. It's this innate human thing, which we're going to get to in a minute, but like do my own thing. I can do it myself. Yeah. But you chose to go with with Francis to three different companies. Yeah. So what you know what what why did you do that and you know how did that end up you know shaking out for you? Mhm. Mm yeah. So I'd say you know two motivators for me that have been pretty consistent over the course of my career have been a desire to grow. And I think you know this Dave because I at we work like push 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 to like expand what I was doing, change what I was doing, try to find new ways to add value. So growth is an important one for me. And then I'd say the second is contribution, right? Am mm -hmm. I in a seat where I can really make an impact to the business, but also to the people that I get to touch in the business and the clients and all that good stuff. So for me, it was just a really simple decision at each of those inflections to continue moving forward with Francis, because at each turn, there was an opportunity to grow and contribute, mm -hmm. right? So when we went from AOL to United Online, while it was the same industry, and a similar state of play, a turnaround for an internet conglomerate, we were entering like the first chapter of this thing, not tying out the, the bow on, on like the turnaround. And I was not entering kind of as a mid-level manager, I was coming in as like head of strategy for the company. And then when I continued on and I was there for about three years, ultimately stepped into the general management role and was responsible for hundreds of people and a PL and, and so those, those opportunities to grow and contribute were just present. And then when I went to WeWork and, and Francis and Artie and others who I'd worked with at AOL and the United Online went to WeWork, it was again, exactly what I needed at that moment. Cause I was hungry to just at that point, not do another turnaround. I'd seen that, I'd seen that show. I had learned those skills and I really wanted a new context in which to flex muscles and, and learn grow and contribute. So that was, that was kind of an obvious next step. And I came in in a role that was fine, right? It wasn't like the dream role. I ultimately 
because I evolved with the company and was able to kind of roll with the punches, I moved into roles that really suited me and growth really suited me. And it was a new thing for the company, right? This, this notion of having this organization and, and doing these things. So, so it just kind of worked, right? But I think having those two things, growth and contribution, if, if I could check those boxes, it made sense to keep moving forward with Francis. And, and we've parted ways per se now, right? We're not working on the same company. We haven't been for years, but we're still super close. He's a mentor. He's a friend. I know his kids well, like in, in his beautiful wife, Rupa. So, so yeah, I'd say it's a great relationship still to this day. That's awesome. Well, one of the things I'm hearing is you pursue experiences. And I think a lot of people don't approach things that way, I, you know, that, or, or, or sort of lack the language or tooling, right? Like I was in a turnaround and obviously you've got skills and abilities and maybe that, mm. that then becomes secondary. It's like, I know that those are the things I want to do, but I want to instantiate them in this experience. And I've got a list of experiences I would like to have, mm. and I'm going to try to go to places or be in situations that enable me to have them. It, was that, you know, would you say that it was like that intentional and that, you know, that is kind of how you were thinking about it? Yeah. So first I'd say, I wish we could have this, this conversation every day. This is such a fun conversation, but, um, a little uncanny. Cause I do say pretty regularly, or when I was mentoring people at greater scale, I would always say life and work are a tapestry of experiences. I think the most important thing to be is a storyteller. You know, the stories you tell yourself, the beliefs that you have, the things that you hold true, create your experience, which you believe about yourself what you believe about your community, what you believe about the world informs how you approach situations, opportunities, whether you seize them or you don't. So I think being a storyteller is powerful. And of course, this conversation is in great hindsight. So right. it's easy to storytell and explain the through line now that it's happened. But I'll say, you know, jumping forward to the present moment, never would I have thought a couple of years ago and never would you have thought that we work would have been a colossal, like, you know, left turn and, and false start with an IPO. And then like, so sadly in team and a team of 500, I had to lay off a lot of people before I was out right before I was out on my butt. So I think, you know, there, there've been a lot of, as much as there's been high highs, there's been low lows. And I think, um, appreciating that even when it's not clear where the story's going, that that life and work are a tapestry of experiences and that your superpowers are the things that you can carry forward. And that as you're, as you're taking the left and right turns in your career, because we're probably all multi-hyphenates, we're all non-linear, that you can continue to draw on those as you embark on that next piece of that tapestry. So something I know you're really good at is also goal setting. Mm. And it's something you're super passionate about. Yeah. And this idea of like experiences that could feel a little more ephemeral yeah. goals by definition, like maybe not measurable, but understandable as achievable. Yeah. How have you thought about the intersection of those? Yes. Yeah. So I've, I've thought a lot about goals in the last couple of years, both in relation to the company that I've been building. And then also as I was leaving, we work and going independent versus a consultant now as a consultant and company builder, what were my priorities, right? Like, what did I really want to tackle in this next mm -hmm. piece of the tapestry? So one, I'd say when I think about goals now, I like to think about three L's, your living, your lifestyle, and your loving. 
So what are your goals around your living, how you want to do your work, how you want to make your money, how you want to have your impact through career? What are your goals around your lifestyle, how you want to show up in the world? And then lastly, what are your goals around loving? The people, the passion projects, the things that you want to prioritize in your personal life. So I, I kind of think about all three of those dimensions when I set vision and goals for myself. And when I work with members through our, our platform, Mindy Collective, that's a framework that we kind of guide people through in their first week of the experience. And we have a great executive coach come in and, and do that with us. So I'd say that's how I think about goals now from this multi-dimensional perspective. And as somebody who's a recovering data junkie, because data is important, and like we certainly cared so deeply about it when we were at WeWork, I'd say there's another element beyond like the measurables, the SMART goals that we, you know, everyone talks about SMART goals. How do you feel, right? Like, and what do you want to feel? So this is, this is something that really only started to really sink in for me in the last probably 12 months. But at the end of the day, the outcomes and the measurables, the things that we're building toward are, are worth absolutely nothing if in the process of getting to that destination, you're not feeling what you want to feel, mm. right? You're not having the experience and enjoying, right, the experience. So asking yourself this outcome, like what do I really want to feel in this outcome, whether it's in making the money and getting the promotion and, and you know, winning the thing and having the relationship, like what do you want to feel? Is it peace? Is it love? Is it joy? Is it, you know, excitement? Is it adventure? Like, what is that thing? And now, like, let's get specific. Like, are you feeling that today? Like, is there some element of what you're doing today that is getting you into that feeling state? Because if the answer is yes, then you've already won. You've achieved your goal. And sure, have the big lofty goal. I certainly have them. And I'm guessing you do too, Dave. But like, if you can enjoy those feelings in the process of doing it, you've already achieved your measurable in my mind. So that, that's like the last element. I'd say I think about goals from those three dimensions, living, lifestyle, loving, and I have very tangible, smart goals around each. And I coach people to do that because I think you should do that, but get to the heart of what do you want to feel? And if you're feeling that, then you're enjoying the process. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. All right. So now in the current stage phase of your career that you're in moment, act, chapter, you are helping people gain career autonomy, right? We're mm. in the midst of the great resignation, the great reshuffle, the great recalibration. Everyone's got a name for it. But I would say at the core of it, what's happening is everyone got to work remote. And so they got to, whether the company liked it or not, they had to trust, mm. which in turn meant a lot of people had agency that maybe they didn't think they could have. And that autonomy, right? When we talk, you know, like Daniel Pink, uh, has a great book on motivation. He calls out autonomy uh, as one of the sort of main factors for motivation. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us want autonomy. And there's this tension between being an employee and being a business owner in whatever category, freelancer, you know, big, but you know, they, you get to like kind of call the shots. And then I, I this idea of working for myself yeah. versus working for someone else. And I'm curious how you think about uh, you know, how you think about that in terms of your career, your decision to do it, and then also helping other people do it, but also, you know, benefiting greatly, I think, from from working for someone else. I just air quoted for anyone not mm -hmm. watching on YouTube. Yeah. So, so how do you think about that? Yeah. 
So, well, first I'd start by saying, you know, we had a little sidebar before we kicked off and, you know, this, this concept of having a portfolio approach to life is one that I think encapsulates where we're headed in terms of the future of work. So, you know, my current chapter career-wise has me consulting. I have a consultancy called E3 Ventures. I help generally startups with their commercial strategy, with their new products, and I do it in a collective format. I lead and I have you know, cross-functional teams that I pull together of other great independents that we collectively do work together with. So that, that's kind of one piece of what I do today. The other piece is that I fell into building a company called Indie Collective. And it, and it came about when I realized that in doing my independent work, I didn't want to do it in isolation, right? I wanted to have the same teaming and mentorship that I'd become, you know, so used to in career. And also I knew that there were things that I didn't know, right? As a commercial leader, as a general manager, as a product leader, I knew certain things and I could do those things well for clients, but I certainly didn't know how to build the book and business and how to have a balanced life as an independent. And those things are playbookable. <laughs> There's people that have done it at a seven or eight figure level that can teach it. So Indie Collective kind of brings together those things, the practical education, the far ahead mentors, and of course the peer group so that you can build better business and life together. So when it comes to independence, I would say, you know, this, this portfolio approach is where I think we're moving and, and, you know, so many workers today in, in this backdrop of COVID have had the chance to, to just free up the time that they used to, to allocate to commuting that they used to allocate to parties or work that used to allocate to other things to do that side hustle or to explore that passion or in the absence of all the culture confetti of the office place are now hungry for it because they're not excited about the nine to five that they're doing via Zoom. So I think a lot of people have started to explore and put a lot more time and energy into a side hustle. And that's, that's turning increasingly into people leaving to pursue that. So one amazing woman that I had the chance to work with last quarter, Katie, she's a content creator. She's now an influencer, you know, uh, doing a host of different things. But, but at the time she was working for Facebook and she shares this story openly because she's, she is an influencer. She's got a hundred thousand followers on Instagram, but, but, but she was working for Facebook and she, you know, in her free time, cause she was bored with Facebook started money with Katie. And it was a blog and then it was an Instagram handle where she was offering, you know, smart advice around building wealth as a millennial female. And 18 months into that, she not only had a following, but she had found a passion. And it was at that juncture that she said, maybe, maybe there's something to build here beyond just the content. Maybe there's a business that, that could reside within this great content. And it was at that stage that she, she and I met and at that stage, she started launching courses and productizing her offering and, and is now fully doing it. And actually was just acquired by Morning Brew. And so she's had a really cool outcome and is soaring. She's like growing like gangbusters. But that's an example of somebody who, if you'd asked her 24 months ago when she was at Facebook, would she ever have her own thing, much less take it from side hustle to full-time independence? She would have said, heck no. In fact, she said it to me and she said it in testimonial. So, so I think there's more and more and more of that, right? And where is Katie going to be? She's 26 or 27. Where is Katie going to be in 10 years, much less 20 years? I have no freaking idea, but I can be sure it's a portfolio approach because she's already got it, 
right? She's built a brand and it happens to be a personal brand. Not everybody wants to be the face of their brand. Katie is really great at it, but she's built a personal brand that now involves amazing courses, merchandise, cool content, um, and a lot of free stuff so that anybody can access her and be inspired. So that's kind of how she's already created a portfolio at the age of 26. I've also seen, you know, people like my mom, who worked in government her whole career and in, in, in really cool roles, now flip flip the switch and, and have her own portfolio. And we've had members through Indie Collective that are public company board members who, who are doing boards or consulting or writing books or are doing nonprofit work. So this notion of portfolios in life and work, I think is where we're moving. And the cool part is that I'm seeing young people who've gotten the courage in COVID um, to just kind of side hustle and take the leap. I'm also seeing really, really seasoned people like my mom, like like many of our members who, who are saying, okay, enough's enough. Like I, I have the skills, I can put them into these different form factors, consulting, writing, coaching, you name it, and, and build a really meaningful business in life. The, the, I, have, I have an issue with the language around side hustle. Mm -hmm. Right, because what it does is there's a primary, secondary, right? In our little sort of sidebar before we talked about, so I, I want to build something for myself. And I'm of the belief that we're always building something for ourselves. At least that's the way I, that's the approach I've taken in my career, right? Mm -hmm. Whether I was working for someone or I was building my own company, if I kind of take this approach that everyone's a client, right? That there's actually. I think the way I think of when people go to freelance, they create three entities. There's me, like my company, and then my client. Mm -hmm. But sometimes when they're – the majority of the times I feel like when people are in an employee-employer relationship, they think of it as two entities, me and, com and company that I work for. But I think if we could keep this like freelancer mindset through everything we do, mm. there's me, there's like my brand, like me as like service provider into the world, and then there's clients – I'm always making that thing stronger hmm. and that's the thing that goes with me, right? That's ultimately yeah. like what Francis wanted to bring to the next company. Yeah. You had a very happy client because you were focused on gaining experiences, delivering value and, you know, you were very clear and I, you know, I would imagine you approached it then like you did at WeWork. You were clear with your expectations. You were clear with how you wanted to grow. You were clear with what you wanted to be paid and you were able to move. But and so I don't think – I never felt from you that it was this like adversarial thing where I feel like now some people say, oh, I need a side hustle to – you know, because I, I don't like my job. I don't, I don't want to build mm. their thing. I want to build my thing. And a side hustle is fine if you're like not happy with your work or there's something happening and you have those ambitions. But I feel like sometimes the precursor to the side hustle is this disappointment with their current situation where I think side hustles are really productive and great when – they're building on these experiences you want to gain. And if you yeah. can't get them, that's fine. But it's not – I think they're better when you're running towards something yeah. than as an outlet to run away from something. Yeah. So two, two thoughts there. First, to anchor in a, a bit of science here, every second of every day, we're bombarded by a million bits of information, right, through our five senses, your sight, your taste, your smell, et cetera, and your, your – Brain can only process 120 of the million bits, 120 of those million. So that's your conscious mind and its processing power. So if you are in a negative state, if you are focused on negative things, guess what? You're going to be seeing more of that 
in your periphery and in your cognitive mm. mind. So being in, in a negative place at work in your life is going to literally bring you more negativity. You don't have to believe in the law of attraction to, to, to believe in what I'm saying. Cause it's just, yeah, like you're wearing negative science. glasses. You're like wearing everything negative comes glasses. through the negative lens. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm always coached employees, even if they're not happy, right. With the current situation. Cause it's just that it's a situation. You can get out of a situation to, to look for the silver linings and to anchor in those, because if you don't, you are literally going to be looking for the wrong 120 bits. So that's the first piece I'd say. I love what you just said about, you know, your brand and, and your superpowers as, as, as the vehicle that can carry you from experience to experience. One of the things that, that we teach through Indie Collective is this framework called relationship building at scale and relationship building at scale is a threefold path. The woman who teaches it, who's a dear friend, Ashley Quinto Powell, likes to say that if you are distinctive at what you do, if you're distinguished in your career, you shouldn't have a handful of referral partners. You should have an army of champions. And I love the mm -hmm. visual of the army of champions. That's awesome. And that's what I wanted when I went independent and was doing my consultancy. And I had been at great companies. I'd gone to great school. Like there's no reason I shouldn't have had the army of champions. And there's no reason that anybody on listening today shouldn't have an army of champions. I think all of us can have it. So how do you get to that place? And I think it actually draws in what Dave said. It starts with first really knowing your storytelling. And I said earlier, I think that's one of the most powerful things that we can do. And it's really who you are, what you can offer, and what's the impact that you have? Because people want to know how you can help them. I'd say the second piece, once you know your story, is, is really to, with that story, recalibrate the important people in your universe. And Ashley likes to say, each of us has a list of 200, even if we don't know we have it, right? So are these people you're selling to? No, they're absolutely not that. And, and sell, selling is not really fun, I don't think, for most of us. It's the people that need to be recalibrated to who you are, what you offer, and the impact that you have. Because when they know that, most people want to help. And then they're primed to help because they can help you to ID and then see and seize the opportunities that are going to get you further faster. And then lastly, you have to stay top of mind, right? We hmm. all interact with so many people. There's so many bits of information that, that bombard us constantly that if you're not top of mind, people won't think of you, see and help you to seize the opportunities. So that's where knowing your story, recalibrating that list of 200 and then staying top of mind and people choose different ways. You might have a podcast. You might be posting on LinkedIn like I do constantly. You might be doing any number of things. But but when you bring those three things together, your brand today is 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 going to be elevated and people are going to try to help you to get further in your career and life. Sam, this is awesome. I could talk all day on these topics. We'll wrap here. How can folks follow along with what you're doing? You just mentioned LinkedIn. How can they yep. get all these great insights you're sharing? Learn a little bit more about Indie Collective. We'll make sure to link to them in the show notes, but I always love for people to hear, hear it directly from you. Absolutely. Yeah. So you can feel free to follow me on LinkedIn. As Dave said, um, I'm constantly in conversation with myself and anybody that wants to, to, to chime in. <laughs> so feel free to follow me there. You can also find out more about Indie Collective if, if you're inspired to think about independence, independent work as a next career vehicle, or if you're on the path and you'd like to get that leg up and you can find us at Indie Collective, which is I-N-D-E collective.co. Great to be with you today, Dave. Awesome. We'll make sure to share everything. Sam, thank you so much. It's always awesome to connect. Yeah. And we'll, we'll have to do this again soon. Absolutely.
And that's it for this episode of Nonlinear. If you enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe, share, and rate us wherever you're listening to the show. You can learn more about Teal on our website, tealhq.com. That's teal like the color, T-E-A-L-H-Q.com. Or follow us on social media at teal underscore HQ. Thank you so much for joining us. And please tune back in to keep hearing about how we make the decisions that shape our career. The Teal Career Paths podcast is produced by Rainbow Creative with senior producer Matthew Jones and editor and associate producer Drew McPowell. You can find more information on them at rainbowcreative.co. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.